After Jesus had been raised from the dead, and before he ascended back to heaven, he spoke to the eleven apostles, and he told them that it was their job description to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And here at the bridge, we talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about disciples, and we talk a lot about making disciples. But if we are to do what Jesus has commanded us to do, we need to know what a disciple is going to look like once we've made one. Right? We could be very deceived into thinking that we're making all kinds of disciples when we're not making any at all. And this morning, in our text from Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls the first disciples. They leave everything, and they follow him. And we're going to see the marks of the character, the lifestyle of a disciple of Jesus Christ today. So let's take a look. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which we've just read. But recall in your mind to last week. Last week we were in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. And we saw one of the days in the life of Jesus Christ. One of the 24-hour periods of time. Do you remember how that day started? Jesus... Yeah, he went up to pray. That was how it ended. It started with him in the synagogue in the morning on a Sabbath day. And he's teaching the people. And somebody all of a sudden shouts out. He's actually demon-possessed. He starts shouting out in the middle of Jesus' teaching. And Jesus, Jesus rebukes him and casts him out of the fellow. Then later on that same day, we find Jesus being invited into Simon's home. Simon is Peter. They just, he hadn't been given the name Peter yet. So he's invited into Simon's home. So this happens during the afternoon. And it turns out Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a high fever, a critical fever. And they asked Jesus if he could do anything to help her. So he took her by the hand, raised her up. The fever left her immediately. She received complete strength instantaneously. And she begins waiting upon Jesus and his apostles. And she helps in coming up with the main meal of the day. So Jesus is enjoying fellowship with Simon's household and some of his disciples uh, throughout the remainder of that afternoon. But when the sun goes down, we have the third setting. And the, that third setting is on the street right outside of Simon's home. Some people came to his house. He opens the door, and instead of one person, he sees a whole street filled with people. And they're sick, and they're maimed, and crippled, and some are blind. Some had paralysis. Some had epilepsy. Some were demon-possessed. And Jesus, one by one, went throughout that crowd and laid his hands on each one of them, giving special, individual care to every person there. And as he laid his hands on them, he was healing each one. That's the third scene. And the fourth scene is the one that Debbie talked about. It's very early the next day. Jesus got up, even though he'd been up late the night before, and his strength was spent. He must have been exhausted, but he gets up very early the next day, and he goes out to a secluded spot, and there he prays, and he seeks his father. And he hears his father tell him in prayer that he is not to stay in Capernaum anymore, but he's to go from village to village, town to town, and he's to continue preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, that brings us to Luke chapter 5, because Jesus is doing just what his father had told him to do. He's preaching the kingdom of God, not in Capernaum, but in another village on the Sea of Galilee. You see, we're told in verse 
One, that Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Have you ever heard of the lake of Gennesaret? It goes by many names. The most popular name in the Bible is the Sea of Galilee. But that's a little bit deceiving because when we think of a sea, well, at least I think of an ocean. Don't you? A big, huge body of water with salt water in it. But that's not what this body of water was. It was fresh water. It was actually a lake. A large lake, maybe the size of um, Lake Tahoe. So it's a, it's a good-sized lake, but it's not actually a sea. It just went by that name. And Jesus is standing by that lake, and we're told that he was um, teaching the Word of God while the people were pressing in on him. So th at this time in Jesus' ministry, he'd become extremely popular. The more miracles he did, the more people followed him. And the more people came to hear him. And so they're pressing in on him. There was, you know, probably in the thousands of people that were lining the banks of the Sea of Galilee that day, wanting to hear the Word of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? If we had people pressing in just to hear the Word of God? In times of revival, that happens. In the Jesus movement, back in the late 60s, early 70s, this was happening. People were pressing in. I remember the story of Calvary Chapel. They had a, a tent fixed because they, they were trying to build a building, but it was taking too long, and they had to have some place to meet, so they constructed this tent. It had room for 2,400 people to sit. They had to go to two services because they couldn't fit 2,400 people under that tent. And they had people standing and people outside the tent peeking in, trying to get a glimpse of what was happening. And people sitting on the front, they're everywhere. So in times of great revival, this does take place. We need to be praying for a time of revival again. And so Jesus saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus had met Simon. If you go back to John chapter 1, you'll find the time when Simon and Jesus met. Actually, Simon's brother Andrew met Jesus first. Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was pointing all of his followers to Jesus, and so Andrew met Jesus, and he thought, could this be the Messiah? And so he ran, and he found his brother Peter and brought him to Jesus because he wanted Jesus to meet this one too. That was a year earlier than the situation we're reading about today. So Jesus, or Simon, has known of Jesus. He's heard Jesus teach. Remember last week, he was in the synagogue when Jesus was preaching. He's seen Jesus cast out demons. He's seen him heal the sick. He saw him heal his own mother-in-law. He's seen miracles with his own eyes. He'd been sort of a part-time disciple because he'd still been fishing and making a livelihood from his fishing business. But we're going to see a big change in this chapter. Something is going to happen that's so astonishing that it's going to change Simon's life forever. So this is Simon's boat. Jesus has to be pushed out a little ways into that boat. There's too many people for him to speak to them. He needs a little bit of space so he can address everybody at the same time. And actually, to be in a boat's a pretty great place to preach from because there would be lining the banks, and as the banks slope down gently to the water's edge, it becomes sort of an amphitheater. And the water would reflect the sound of his voice back up to the people. So it's, it's a natural place to speak from. So just imagine Jesus sitting in the boat. The boat's his pulpit. And he begins to address the people about the kingdom of God. 
the good news that God has a kingdom and he's inviting sinners. He's welcoming sinners into that kingdom. Well, Simon's on the side over here washing his net. The reason somebody would wash their net is because over time you let down that net enough times, it gets seaweed and weeds and little pebbles and dirt and grime all over it. And it needs to be washed and stretched. And so Simon's doing that as he's probably at one side of his ears. He's listening to Jesus and the other side he's working on these nets. And so what I want to direct your attention to this morning is four aspects of a disciple's life. Four aspects. The first one is a disciple's obedience. A disciple's obedience. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. It says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out to the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the net. Notice that Jesus is ushering a command. <laughs> These are in the imperative mood. This wasn't just a simple suggestion. Jesus is telling Simon to do something. Just like a boss would tell an employee to do something. Let down your nets. Well, first, launch yourself out into the deep and let down your net. And notice, how, do, how does Peter respond to that? Is he gung-ho about this? Not at all. He says, Master, we toiled all night long and we didn't catch anything. But at your word, we'll let down the net. It's almost as if he's saying, Lord, I know that you're the rabbi here. And you know all about the Bible. And you know all about theology. And I know you're even a carpenter. You know all about fixing tables and chairs. But Lord, we're the fishermen. We've been doing this our whole life. We're pros at this. And Lord, you don't fish during the day. You fish at night. And we just got done fishing all night long, and we didn't catch a single solitary thing. But Lord, I'll humor you. Doesn't make any sense. It's not logical to me in the least. But I'll humor you, Lord. I'll let down the nets. And he had some pretty strong reasons not to want to do what Jesus said, didn't he? He says, Master, we toiled all night. Fishermen would fish during the night. That's when you would catch the fish. During the daytime, it was very difficult to catch any fish. So it didn't make any sense if they fished all night and caught nothing at all to go out again during the daytime. If they didn't catch anything all night long, surely they're not going to catch anything during the day. Secondly, they just got done washing their nets. They're going to have to wash them all over again if they put the nets down. Thirdly, Peter is exhausted. <laughs> He's been up all night long. He has toiled. The word there means to work to the point of exhaustion. Fishermen worked hard. So he has just wiped out. And he's saying, Lord, I toiled all night, but at your word, Master, I'll let down the nets. So what we see here is, though he wasn't willing at the beginning, he did become willing. And at Jesus' bidding, he did let down the nets. Now notice the content of Jesus' command to Peter. It's twofold, isn't it? Number one, launch out into the deep. Number two, let down your nets. Launch out into the deep. In other words, Peter, I want you to go in your boat to where the fish are. Now Jesus could probably have caused those fish just to swim up to the shore, jump out right into the boat if he wanted to, right? That's not how he worked. He wanted Jesus to launch out into the deep. He's, 
See, what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching Peter and the other disciples an, a very important spiritual lesson. He's giving them an object lesson here. Because what he's telling them to do is by design. He has something in the back of his mind that he wants them to get from this situation. So launch out into the deep. Go where those fish are and then let down your nets. And God is calling us to do the same thing. See, he explains what he's talking about later on in this chapter. He tells him in verse 10, Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. So the purpose for what Jesus was doing is he's wanting Peter to get the spiritual lesson that just as he's been a fisherman his whole life, Jesus is causing or calling him from the life of fishing for fish to a life of fishing for people, fishing for souls. So Peter, launch out into the deep. Go where the fish are. And then Peter let down the net. And he's calling us, brothers and sisters here at the bridge, launch out into the deep, go where the fish are, and then let down the gospel net. There is only one net that can catch any fish, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first of all, let me ask you this. Have you launched out into the deep? Or are you still sitting on the shore? You say, well, Brian, I've got a boat. I'm a fisherman. And I've got a net right here. And I'll say to you, well, are you doing anything with that boat? Are you doing anything with that net? Well, not really, but I'm right here on the shore. Well, that doesn't do it, does it? It doesn't cut it. <laughs> Jesus has commanded us not to be on the shore with our boat. He's commanded us to launch out into the deep where the fish are. And you say, well, Brian, I'm not comfortable going where sinners are. Because sinners sin. And God has changed my nature, and I'm not comfortable around sin anymore. Well, that's actually a good thing, to be uncomfortable around sin. But it's a bad thing to make that an excuse not to go where sinners are to reach them. I'm sure Jesus wasn't comfortable being around sin. He was spotlessly and perfectly holy. But what do we find him doing in the Gospels? He's hanging out with sinners, constantly. He goes to their parties. He goes to their feasts. Remember later on, Matthew is going to invite all of his sinner friends, prostitute and tax collector, he's going to invite them all to a big party, and Jesus goes. He doesn't stay away. He rubs shoulders with sinners. So launch out into the deep. Are any of you folks here intentionally, deliberately, hanging out with sinners? Even though you know it's going to cause you some discomfort. Maybe it's going to cause you to hang out with people that are drinking to excess. Maybe it's using foul language, using the name of the Lord in vain. And none of us appreciates that. We cringe at that. But does your willingness to obey Jesus Christ cause you to launch out? Go where the sinners are at. And secondly, when you get there, do you let down your nets? You say, well, Brian, I don't do that. I don't, I don't say anything about Christ. I just try to live a Christian life in front of these people. There's a saying that St. Francis of Assisi supposedly made famous, and it was, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. That's kind of like saying, feed the hungry at all times. If necessary, use food. It's a ridiculous statement, because you can't preach the gospel without using words. 
Words are the way we communicate. Well, I suppose you could preach the gospel through written, written words, or maybe if you're deaf, you could use sign language, but you're going to have to communicate the content of the gospel if you're going to catch souls. It doesn't happen just by living a good life in front of people. You think, if I just live a clean life, a good life, somehow that's going to make them want to become a Christian. Well, it, it could stimulate a desire to know more, but at some point you're going to have to open your mouth. And you're going to have to know the gospel well enough to tell them this is how you can be saved. God has set a rescue motion into operation by which sinners like you and me can come to Christ and have all of our sins forgiven. It's been said that preaching the gospel is just simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We're not better than anybody else. We're beggars. We're sinners saved by sovereign grace. So we need to launch out into the deep. Not only that, we need to let down our nets. Jesus said in Mark 16, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Those are our marching orders. And so, are there people in your sphere of influence, your life, who are they? Try to identify them right now. Who are the people that I know that aren't saved? Am I intentionally spending time with them? And when I am with them, am I praying for an opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ and how they can know the greatest gift ever? So, a disciple's obedience... Number one, this is the lifestyle of a disciple. He obeys Jesus even when it doesn't seem logical, even when he thinks he knows maybe a little bit more than the master about this particular subject, <laughs> even though that sounds crazy. A disciple is obedient to Jesus. Secondly, a disciple's excitement. Let's read about a disciple's excitement. Starting in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And then skip over verse 8 to verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. This was a fisherman's dream. I'm sure this was the greatest catch of fish that Peter had ever experienced in his entire life. And he had probably been a fisherman from his youth. I mean, I'm trying to imagine it. <laughs> They hadn't caught a single thing all night long. They're tired. They're bone weary. And they go out again. They let down their nets, not expecting anything. And suddenly they feel this tug. And then another tug. And, the, and they're starting to pull. And they feel the weight. And they're thinking, what in the world is in those nets? And so all of them together are yanking on those nets. And they pick it up. And they see fish galore. And they're piling them into the boat. The nets are starting to break. Because they've, these nets have ever, never felt a strain like this before. And as they pull those fish into their boat, they're sick to John and James in the other boat, come on over here. We can't haul these all in by ourselves. We need your help. So they come on over and they're helping them. And the boats start to sink under the weight of all these fish. So you can imagine this great big mound of fish. <laughs> and then slowly they're bringing their boats to shore. This was a fisherman's dream. They couldn't believe it. In fact, it says they were astonished at the catch of fish. This is a parable. 
This is a prophecy. God is telling Peter that he is going to sweep multitudes into the kingdom of God. Just like he swept multitudes of fish into that boat that day. The Bible says that when we all get to heaven, it's going to be a number that no man can count. It's going to be so vast. The circle of people, of sinners saved by the grace of God, is going to be so vast that you look around and you can't even begin to start counting. There's a multitude that defies imagination. Yes, when we look at around uh, at people today, it seems like Christians are in the, the minority, and we are. But on that day, there's going to be a huge, huge number of believers. All of us fish, caught in the gospel net. Now, it's interesting that the word that Luke uses here for a large number is also the word he uses in the book of Acts. Remember, Luke also wrote Acts. The very same Greek word he uses for a large number is translated by multitude in the book of Acts. Acts 5.14 says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. So Luke is showing us the fulfillment of Jesus' words here when he told Peter, Don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. That large number of fish that was swept into the boat, that was just to represent the large number of people that Jesus is going to sweep into his gospel boat. If you're a Christian, you're one of those fish that's been caught in the net. On the day of Pentecost, Peter caught some men, didn't he? 3,000 souls. Two chapters later, it says the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So multitudes are being swept into the net. So what we have here, I believe, is Peter totally astonished and excited about what the Lord has done to give him this super catch of fish. He'd never seen anything like it in his whole life. You know, there's nothing more exciting to me than to be part of and used by the Lord when he transforms somebody's life. Would you agree? There's nothing like that. When even if you just had a small part to play and the Lord used you in some way, just like he used Peter here. Peter didn't have to do a whole lot, did he? He just got in his boat, went out a little ways, dropped the net, whoa, bam, <laughs> hauled him back in. So Peter's part was rather small. The Lord did the big thing, but Peter got to be used in the process of bringing all these fish into the boat. Has the Lord ever used you in the transformation of somebody's life? Can you think of somebody that he's used you? Oh, we, we should yearn within that God would use us to speak to somebody. And that person, the power of the gospel so enveloped that person's life that you start to see immediate transformation. I'm thinking back right now to, I guess it's been about 20 years now, when I was pastoring Milpitas Bible Fellowship. And on a Wednesday night, this new young couple showed up, Tom and Rebecca. They lived just down the street, like a block or less from the street. And they, they saw this church on the corner, and God was already stirring Rebecca's heart. Because she came that night, and she started to talk to me, and she started to cry. as She was telling, I don't know if I'm forgiven. And so I tried to help her understand the gospel. 
that Christ forgives, that his death on the cross washes away sin. And it wasn't long before she was rejoicing in salvation. She had, the, the work of the Spirit had begun to transform her heart. Her husband came right along with her. Tom and Rebecca were soundly converted. And Rebecca had a sister named Liz. And Liz had a boyfriend named Sven. And so Liz, uh, Rebecca invited Liz to come to one of our church services, and Liz says, yeah, I don't want to go alone. Sven, would you go with me? Well, no, I'm not going to go, unless you go to this concert that I want to go to. If you'll do that, I'll go with you to church. So they made a, a, a deal. <laughs> so she said, sure, I'll go to the concert with you. Just come to church with me. So Sven and Liz came to church. They sat in the front row. Folks, that never happens. Well, here we've got a few people, praise the Lord. But usually nobody sits in the front row. Sven sits there in the front row, and I preach a message. It wasn't even a gospel message. It was God's pleasure in being God. I remember the sermon. And he asked, can you meet with me later this week? And I, I met with him down at a, a little Coco's restaurant. Um, and we talked. I shared the gospel with Sven. The very next Sunday, he shows up and he says, Brian, I'm concerned about my grandma. She's a Jehovah's Witness, and I don't think she's saved. And I said, Sven, why are you concerned about your grandma? You're not saved. He said, yeah, Brian, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> when did that happen? Well, I don't know, <laughs> but, it, but I, it's happened now. <laughs> so Sven came to Christ. His girlfriend Liz came to Christ. And then Sven had a brother named Sean. He was only 16 years old. And he said, Sean, you got to come to this church and just check it out. Things are happening. <laughs> so Sean started to attend. And he would go, he went a months. He would just sit there. When the communion was happening, he would stay in his seat. He wouldn't take it. But he was hearing the gospel week after week. And finally, one day, to my joy, he came up and took communion, which meant that he had received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And then Sven and Sean invited their parents Dennis and Dagmar to come. And they started coming along. And it wasn't long before they were saved. And then they would have foreign exchange students that would come and stay with them every year. And they had one called Danny. And Sean took an interest in Danny. And he started to spend time with her. And uh, he was attracted to her. But at the same time, he wanted her to know the Lord. And so he was sharing the gospel with Danny. And Danny became a Christian. So this is so exciting to see, like domino effects. One was falling after the other. Oh, I long to see that again. Don't you? Can we be in prayer that the Lord would do a new thing? Start to draw in fish into the net. There's nothing more exciting than to see people come to know Jesus Christ. And that's why being a Christian is exciting. You never know what God's going to do in your life that day. You never know if he's going to put you in proximity to somebody else and he's going to give you an opportunity to speak to them and because God's word is powerful. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. So we see the obedience of a disciple. We see the excitement of a disciple. We also see here the humility of a disciple. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now why would Peter say this? It seems a little strange in the context of the story. Everything's going great. He sent Peter out. Peter let down his nets. He got this huge catch of fish. Peter comes in, and instead of being all overjoyed and giving Jesus a big hug... <laughs> Instead, he falls down at his knees 
And he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Go away. I, I, I shouldn't be around you. I'm sinful. What, what did he see in Jesus that day? He saw that Jesus was no ordinary man. Now, he had already seen Jesus cast out demons and heal the sick, but this one put him over the top. And he knew without a doubt, Jesus is no ordinary human being. He's the divine Son of God. God the Son. God in the flesh. This convinced him of it. And when he saw who Jesus was, he reflected on who he was. And he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Go away. I, I can't be near you. You're holy and I'm sinful. And that's where humility is produced in our lives, folks. It's produced when we catch a vision for who God is. And then all of a sudden, we start to think about ourselves in light of Him. And we feel utterly unworthy, even to be in the presence of God. Has that ever happened to you before? Have you ever had a revelation? Jesus is God. And that, that grip you, capture you. This is who he is. And then you don't feel so chummy, chummy, buddy, buddy, like he's the, the man upstairs, everything's... You start to feel, I don't even feel worthy at all because he is holy. You know, Isaiah the prophet at one time felt that. He had a vision of the Lord, high and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple, the angels crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And how does Isaiah respond? Woe to me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he saw the King and all of his holiness, he, he said, I'm ruined. That means I am undone. I'm wiped out. Woe to me. Curses upon me. Because I know that I'm nothing like this great God I've just caught a vision of. Have you ever caught a vision of God and His holiness? The truth is, we probably often don't really see God in all of His fullness and all of His holiness. You talk to sinners, and they say, well, I think I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. I'll be all right. It's kind of like a skunk saying, I don't smell that bad. I'll be okay. If, if you want to know if you smell bad, you don't ask another skunk if you smell bad. Because skunks don't know. And sinners don't know their condition, do they? Sinners, they can't see God in His holiness. Their eyes are blinded. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That they might not see what? The light of the glory of Christ. Yeah, sure, they know a little bit about Jesus. They've learned about Him in Sunday school. They've heard people talk. They don't see His glory. Just like Peter saw the glory of Christ on this occasion, he saw His glory. And it caused him to tremble. Caused him to tremble. It caused him to humble himself like he had never humbled himself before. And this is the true posture of a disciple. We come on our face. <laughs> we don't come bragging and strutting and boasting, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, Lord. You ought to let me into your kingdom. If anybody gets there, it ought to be me, Lord. You know how good I've been. You know all I've been doing. 
we come broken. Blessed are the poor, poverty-stricken in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are just poor, bankrupt, like Peter felt that day. Lord, I don't deserve to be in your presence. Do you remember Jesus telling a little parable about some servants who after they had worked hard all day, they came in and he says, those servants don't sit down and the master doesn't serve them. After they've been working all day, they come in and they serve the master. And then when they're all done, the master lets them go get something to eat. And they don't say, Lord, I've been doing, I've been serving you all day. You ought to be happy with me. No, they say, Lord, we're just unworthy slaves. We've only done what you commanded us to do. Nothing more. We're unworthy, unprofitable slaves. So that's the posture that a true Christian takes before Jesus Christ. A slave. An unworthy, sinful, <laughs> humble slave before his master. And what does the Lord do when we take that posture? He raises us up. He draws us near to himself. Takes us near to his heart. Showers his love and his affection and his grace all over us. But we'll never experience that grace until we take that low position like Peter did that day. So Peter shows us the humility of a disciple. You know, it's, it's awfully ugly in the church when people are filled with pride. Have you ever been in a church where pride has its way? And people start to bicker because they're not getting their own way. They have this inflated self of self-importance and if they don't get their ways, their noise, nose is bent out of shape and so they leave in a huff from the church and they take 10 people along with them. That's just ugly. It's pride. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? Humility of mind. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of heart. Jesus was a humble man, even though he was God in human flesh. He modeled for us a life of lowliness and meekness and humility. And a Christian is to follow his Lord. We're to be like Christ. So we've seen a disciple is obedient. A disciple shares the excitement of bringing in the fish. A disciple is humble. The last one that I want you to see is the disciple's treasure. The disciple's treasure. I find that in verse 11. It says, When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You would think they would say, right on, Lord. Let's go out and do it again. Can you fill up our boats again? This is great. We're going to make all kinds of money from this boatload. But instead, they had the opposite. They gave it all up. They left everything to follow Jesus. Now, in context, the everything there would certainly include the boats, right? The nets, the fish. I mean, there's a fortune in those fish right there. They're leaving that behind. 
and any other equipment they had, Peter is leaving his business, his livelihood. He's leaving his sense of earthly security behind. Because if he leaves all that, he has no way to take care of himself and his family and his mother-in-law. And you think, well, why did he make that decision? Isn't that kind of crazy? Isn't that a little foolish, maybe, to leave all of that to follow Jesus? Did he do it begrudgingly? Like, oh, I guess I have to. I'm ever, if I'm ever going to be saved, if I'm ever going to be forgiven, I have to leave all that behind. I don't want to. I really want to be back there fishing, but I'm going to leave it because I know I've got to. No, not at all. I believe Peter left those nets joyfully. Do you remember the story Jesus told once? He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he hid it. He covered it back up with dirt. He didn't want anyone else to find it. And then he went and sold everything he had in this world to buy the field. But I left out a very important part of that story. For joy over it, he went and sold everything he had to buy the field. And you say, well, sir, aren't you... A, being a little bit impetuous here? Are you sure you want to sell everything you have? Absolutely. Have you seen the treasure? Have you, have you seen it? Do you know what kind of wealth is in that box? I can't believe my good fortune to stumble upon this treasure. This thing is worth ten times what I've ever owned in my entire lifetime. I'm gladly give it all up to have the treasure. And that's what happens in a disciple's life. He doesn't begrudgingly give up everything that he has because he sees the treasure. And if you don't see the treasure, I don't blame you for making a decision not to forsake everything. But if God has opened the, lifted the blinders and shown you the glory of Jesus like he did to Peter that day, you will joyfully, you will not be able to wait to follow him. So what's keeping you back from following Jesus today? All you need is your eyes open to see him for who he is. And I can't make it happen. And you know what? You can't make it happen. But God can. God, would you make it happen right now, this morning, to some people? That they would see Jesus and they would not be able to wait. Wild horses couldn't keep you away. You would run with all your might if you just saw him for who he is. You would leave anything behind. You'd leave your sins. You'd repent on the spot if you just saw him in his glory. You'd leave anything that would keep you from him, including your occupation, if that's keeping you from him. You'd leave your wealth. You'd leave, you'd leave any relationship that was hindering you from him. All you need is a sight of his glory. Because a disciple's treasure is Jesus. He's our treasure. And there's nothing in this world like him. Nothing can compare to him. Nothing can value him. He's worth more than 10 billion worlds. So a disciple has a new treasure in his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ.
God does it. According to Paul, God shines into the heart to give the glory of Christ. And my friend, if you see His glory today, you ought to fall down on your face and thank God. Because most people don't see it. I'm going to be speaking at a graveside service this Friday. And there will be plenty of people there who don't see the glory. And unless a miracle of grace happens, where God shines in the heart to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, they will die in their sins unconverted. It's going to take God doing a work. Do you remember Lydia in the book of Acts? She and some other women are down by a river and evidently there wasn't a synagogue. There wasn't even 10 male Jews. So Paul doesn't go to the synagogue. He goes down to a riverside hoping to find some women engaged in prayer. He does. He finds some Jewish women. And he starts to speak to them the things of the gospel. And the Bible says, And the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. It wasn't her opening her own heart. The Lord was opening it up. It was like it was, it was a, a prison, smashed, closed. The key was taken away, and she couldn't open it up. She had no power. The Lord put the key in, unlocked it, brought it open, and said, Lydia, I have a gift for you today. It's my son, Jesus Christ. That's the treasure of the disciple. He is our love. He's fairest among 10,000. He's our bright and morning star. He is the one that thrills our soul. He will be forever the one that we will fall before and worship. We're going to take any crowns we've earned through faithful obedience and we're going to say, Lord, I'm not worthy to have this crown here. This is yours. This is yours. We're going to be like, Peter, I'm not even worthy to stand in your presence. It's only by your grace that you cause me to draw near and allow me to be in your presence, Lord Jesus Christ. He's our treasure. He's a brilliant, worthy valuable treasure worth more than anything else in this world. And folks, never make something more important to you than Him. Never allow your heart to be drawn out to start loving something more than Christ. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. 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 John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Whether it's a banjo, or a new car, or a new house, or a favorite TV show, or a person, a loved one. All of these things can become idols. Strive to make sure that Christ has your whole heart and all of your affection. That when you rise in the morning, the first one you greet is Jesus. Good morning, Lord. May I live for you today. Walk with me. Enable me to be pleasing in your sight today, Lord, because I love you beyond all others. So we see here a disciple's obedience, a disciple's excitement, a disciple's humility, and a disciple's treasure. Let me just ask you guys some questions. Are you being obedient to Jesus? Are you being obedient? Are you launching out into the deep and letting down your nets? It wasn't just for Peter's sake that the story was recorded. It's for our sake too. Remember Kelly earlier said all of us are missionaries? Maybe not foreign missionaries, but we certainly are local missionaries. We're on mission. Every Christian is on mission with Christ. 
Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He left, but he gave us the privilege and the joy of fulfilling the mission that he started. So are you doing it? Are you launching out into the deep? And that means are you intentionally putting yourself in the way of other people that don't know Christ? Making time for people that don't know him. And are you telling them the good news? What about a disciple's excitement? Have you ever shared in that? And are you currently sharing in the excitement of letting the Lord use you in somebody else's life? This can either be telling a lost person about Christ or it can be meeting with and working with a younger Christian to help them grow to maturity, to see them slowly but surely be transformed by the renewing of the Word of God in their minds. Are you doing that? Are you working in anyone's life? Or, or is it just all to yourself? Folks, that's not a healthy place to be. If we're just always on our own, reclusive, spiritually reclusive, just doing our own thing, that's not spiritually healthy for you. And it doesn't produce a life of excitement. <laughs> if you want to share in the joy of the mission, you've got to be out there involved. What about a disciple's humility? Do you know something of that? Have you seen Christ in his glory and in his holiness? And compared to him, you say, Lord, I, uh, who am I, O oh Lord, to be in your presence? Is he your treasure? Do you know Jesus Christ as the treasure of your soul? The one that fills you with joy. The one without whom... Even if you have everything, but don't have him, you know that you have nothing. <coughs> but if you have him and don't have anything else, you still have everything. That's our treasure. May God give us here at the bridge a great catch of fish. He's prophesied that he's going to bring in a, a boatload boatloads, all kinds of boats laden down with fish. And folks, we're just one of the boats out there. Do you remember when Peter's boat got full? He couldn't do the whole work himself, so he calls to James and John, hey, I need your help. Come on over and help. No one church is ever going to be able to do this work by themselves. We're just one of the boats out there. But we are one of the boats. May God give us a catch for Jesus' glory. Lord, would you make it so? We look at ourselves and see that we're weak, we are small, we're few, we are feeble, we are, are fallen in ourselves, in Adam we partake of his sinful nature. Lord, all of those things are true, but we, it is also true that we're your disciples. And Lord, you have shown us something of the glory of Jesus. And that's changed everything. And it's given us a hunger for you to use us in your kingdom work. So, Lord, would you do that work today? Touch each person, Lord, today. Do the work of your Spirit through the Word in their life. That work that they need. In Jesus' name, amen.